Our reading is from 1 Kings 17. It's on chapter or on page 358 of our church Bibles. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kerith ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I will instruct the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kerith ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have instructed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath, where he came to the town gate. A widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar, so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replies, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the women and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jack of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse, and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him up to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on the bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, 
and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. This is the word of the Lord. Very please keep the passage open in front of you, page 358, 1 Kings 17. We're going to be looking at that together. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we pray, please, as we come to this passage uh, in your word, that you would teach us, help us to be ready to listen, help us to see your greatness and your character, help us to respond to you and to go from here better equipped to live for you this week. Amen. Well, God has competition. He has competition uh, in the world around us, doesn't he? We see it in many ways. There are many religions, many spiritualities and philosophies people can choose from. On the train on the way uh, up to Durham on Friday, when I was going, I couldn't help but overhear a conversation people behind me were having. They were speaking very loudly. And at one point they were talking about what they believed. Uh, and one said, and I think it's pretty typical of quite a lot of people that we would know, they said, well, I believe in a higher power, something out there. But clearly not one of the sort of normal religions of the world, but just this idea that there is something out there. And that's quite common, I think, that people have this sort of make-it-up-themselves kind of religion of, uh, I believe there's something, but I don't know what. God has competition. And in the UK, it seems that the God of the Bible is losing that competition. Fewer people go to church, fewer people uh, think church is a good thing. And so it seems not only is there competition, but it seems God is losing. And that doesn't just have an impact on the statistics. It has an impact on our personal faith as well, doesn't it? With numbers dwindling, uh, we can ask, is God really God? And does it really matter whether I live for him or not? whether I seek to obey him or not. After all, many don't, and their lives seem okay. Does it matter? And, very importantly, can I trust God? Is he the God, and therefore I can trust him, or is he not really, and therefore my trust is misplaced? Can I put my whole life in his hands? Is it safe if I do? Well, we're going to turn to 1 Kings 17 to 19. That's the series that we're starting today. And we're going to learn lessons from a time when God had competition and seemed to be losing. The idea of having this series is to see partly the parallel between our time now, but mainly actually that we lift our eyes to God. Last summer we were doing a series in the book of James. Wonderful book to go through, very practical, very challenging, but it really makes you look at your own life and say, look, am I being consistent? Am I living out what the Bible teaches? This series, the idea is we lift our eyes to God and see him, and see him in a time not totally different from our own. So what were those days like? Well, they were dark days in Israel's history. Ahab had become king. You read that in 1 Kings 16. And he was a terrible king of Israel. 
And this is after the time of David and Solomon and that kind of thing. The kingdom has split, if you know about that time in the history of Israel. The kingdom has split and we've got Israel in the north. And Ahab has become king of Israel. And it says in chapter 16, he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than of any who went before him. That's not a great summary of a reign, is it? He married a woman called Jezebel who was daughter of the king of the Sidonians. Uh, the Sidonian Sidon was in the north of, uh, and was north of Israel. Uh, and she, Jezebel and Ahab, brought in uh, the gods of the Sidonians into Israel to worship. <clears throat> so they set up a temple to Baal. There may have been more than one Baal, uh, but they set up a temple to the Baals. And they set up worship of another god called Asherah. Competition for the Lord. But of course bringing in this competition wasn't just competition, it was also disobedience. Because God had told his people not to worship other gods, but to worship him only. And yet Ahab and Jezebel had brought in these other gods and set up temples to them. It did seem that as these other gods moved in, the Lord God was being pushed out. Ahab and Jezebel not only brought in these other gods, but also, we find out later on, were seeking to get rid of, eliminate the prophets of the Lord. So it seemed the Lord was losing. But then... 1 Kings 17, onto the scene bursts the prophet Elijah. And we see here that even when things look disastrous, the Lord has his... And the first thing we read in chapter 17 is of Elijah, the prophet, going to Ahab and saying... You see it in the verse, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. It might have looked like the Lord, the God of Israel, did not live, but he does live. And Elijah says, as surely as he lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now that immediately is the Lord showing that he is supreme and that Baal is not. Because the rains were something that Baal was supposed to be in charge of. And so by stopping the rains, except at Elijah's word, the Lord is making a huge statement. He is saying, the Lord is God. Baal is not he is not the living God. And he showed that, at least in part, by saying, I will stop the rains. But the withholding of the rain is more than that. It is also the Lord being true to his word. Because he had warned his people that if they rejected him, if they turned away from him, if they disobeyed him, that he would stop the rains. He warned them of this in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. The rain won't come until Elijah, who stands in the Lord's presence, says so. 
The Lord is God. Now, you can follow through the points of the sermon if you want on the back of the notice sheet. They're there for you. If you want to make notes as well, you can. We see that the Lord is supreme. He withholds the rain, but he also withholds something else. He sends Elijah off in verse 2 to the Kerith Ravine. He says, verse 2, leave here, turn eastward, hide in the Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan. That's further away, that's outside of sort of Israel, that, that's beyond the river, the river Jordan. And did you notice what he told Elijah to do there? Verse 3, hide. Hide in the Kerith Ravine. Why is he telling him to hide there? Well, some say uh, this is to preserve Elijah's life. Ahab was going to want to kill Elijah. And maybe that's right. But some will say in their commentaries, and quite rightly so, don't forget who Elijah is. He's the prophet of the Lord. He stands in the Lord's presence. He brings the word of the Lord to God's people. So for the Lord to tell him to hide is for the Lord to withhold his word from his people, which is, of course, a greater famine than the lack of rain will produce. So our first point from the passage is the Lord is God. However popular, however unpopular, he is God. Whether people acknowledge him or not, he is God. Even if he seems to be losing... He is God. And it does matter whether we worship him or not. To bow before the God of the Bible and worship him is not a matter, a matter of preference, like choosing your favourite breakfast cereal. Oh, I'll go for this one, not that one. No, no, it's not like that. It is a matter of recognising reality. He is God. And even when he's quiet, it does matter what we do with his word and his instructions. Sometimes we might think, well, surely God doesn't really care whether we worship him or not. After all, those of other religions seem to be doing fine. Those who don't worship anything seem to be living okay. And this passage says it does matter. Even if God is quiet for a time or seems to be losing popularity, it matters. The Lord is God. And we will see that more as we go through the coming chapters. There's more exciting times to come of seeing that the Lord is God. But then there's a twist. The brook dries up. God had told Elijah to go to the brook, and he was fed there by ravens. We'll come back to the provision in a moment, in a few minutes. But the brook that God takes him to, to so that he can drink from the brook, the brook dries up. And the word of the Lord goes, comes to Elijah again to go to Zarephath. Verse 7 onwards, we see that. Uh, verse 9, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. Why there? Now, that would have been a surprise. It would have been a big surprise for Elijah. Why? Well, it's not a town in Israel. It's in Sidon. You remember I said, uh, it, Sidon is the nation to the north of Israel. But more than that, this is where Jezebel comes from, 
where she brought the worship of Baal from. Sidon is the capital of Baal worship. And God is saying, Elijah, go to that country. And he's saying, go to a widow. That's what he says, isn't it? I have instructed a widow there to supply you with food. Now, that doesn't come across as a ridiculous thing to say to us, but then that would have seemed utterly ridiculous. For a start, this is a woman he's being sent to. Now, we quite rightly uh, think and uh, behave that women should be treated equally. That is absolutely right. It is a good thing, but that wasn't true then. God is saying, go to this woman and this widow. And a widow inevitably meant she was going to be poor. God's saying, I'm sending you to a widow to provide for you. That would have sounded ridiculous. Why? Because this is the real God. The living God. Who breaks through barriers to the outsiders. Sending his prophet behind enemy lines to this poor widow in this Baal-worshipping country. Here is the boundary-crossing love of God. That he gets his prophet to cross racial, gender, economic and even religious boundaries. Sending him in like an SAS trooper to reach this widow. He judges Israel for their rejection of the Lord and reaches this outsider. Which is a part of God's character we need to take on board. We need to get to grips with because it is wonderful and it is really challenging, particularly for religious people. Jesus found this. His first sermon that he preached in in the book of Luke Luke chapter 4. It was in his hometown. It was a very short sermon by the looks of it uh, in Luke. And he says to the crowd about this passage. The crowd's starting to sort of try to assess who he is. And Jesus says, There were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine on the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in Sidon. Jesus says, do you remember Elijah? Went to that widow in in Sidon. Not to any town or any widow in Israel, but had to go outside. And after Jesus finished saying that, the crowd tried to kill him. The Jewish crowd tried to kill Jesus. It's incredible. We read it and go, why are they so upset? But they knew what Jesus was saying. He was saying, you guys are like Israel back then. You're very religious, but you are not okay. And he would go across boundaries, across barriers, to those who would listen to him and receive him. And that's why they were furious with him. And we too need to realise that God reaches out to the outsiders. And we need to reach out to them too with the gospel. To people not like us. People who we think would never come to Jesus. To those neighbours of ours who we're trying to love, who are of other nationalities, other religions. To those who, who have other gods. Maybe their work 
maybe their family, maybe their looks, maybe success, and those whose lifestyles don't match what the Bible says. We are to cross boundaries and barriers, to reach out, because that is what God does. God loves the outsider. And, thanks, can you move us on? The Lord demands to be first. He makes huge demands. Elijah goes to this, uh, to Zarephath, finds this widow, and makes an outrageous demand on her. Did you see it as it was read? It's incredible, isn't it? He, he goes and he finds this widow and says to her, please could you get me a drink? And it says in verse 11, as she was going to get it, he called, and bring me please a piece of bread. Well, she says, as surely as the Lord your God lives, interesting way that she speaks of God, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar, in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. She's saying, this is it. This is all I've got. Just a handful of flour. The food has run out. And then do you see what he says to her, verse 13? Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. Now that is incredible, I think, that Elijah says, but first. But first, make a loaf of bread for me. A loaf of bread? She's got a handful of flour. And yet he says, first, make that for me. Not, let's share what you've got. Not, I'll have whatever's left over. No, Elijah says, first, make a small loaf for me. He's saying, put me before you. Put me before your son. That is a huge ask. The Lord God sends his prophet to a poor widow in a foreign country in a famine to demand her last bit of bread from her. Uh, yeah, he says, you have things afterwards. And what he says next is essential, isn't it? Verse 14. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. Put God first, he says, and trust his word. Put God first. Put God before your child, and he will provide for you. Here is the demand God puts on all of us. When Jesus uh, was speaking to people, he, he said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What's he saying? He's saying, sacrifice yourself. 
put me first. Before yourself, before your career, before your family. That's the demand. See, as we go, as we go to cross boundaries, as we go to others, we take the message of Jesus and the message of the gospel, which is to say to those who are not like us, those who are not living according to the Bible's ways, those who are, who are not even thinking about the Lord God or think Jesus is ridiculous, is to go to them and say, look at Jesus, come see him. Here is someone it is worth giving up everything for, and the call is to give up everything for him, to put him first before your career, your family, before anything. That's the demand. And here is faith in a nutshell, isn't it? Putting God first and trusting his word. That's what it is. Even when it seems ridiculous to do so. And we will find whatever we sacrifice, we actually end up better off. In a place that is better than if we hadn't. That's what actually the woman found, wasn't it? By trusting the Lord, actually, and by putting God first... In front of her child, in front of her son, it was actually better for her and her son. Now, we need to be careful there. This isn't a prosperity gospel. It's not that this is saying, put God first and suddenly you'll have, you know, all food delivered in no cost and, you know, suddenly your bank balance will increase. You know, it's not prosperity gospel. But what you do get is far better than what you sacrifice. The relationship with the Lord is so much greater. The Lord demands to be first. And then the last point, the Lord's greater provision. We see over and over again in the passage, don't we, that the Lord provides in miraculous ways, incredible ways. He provides for Elijah with these ravens who come and bring bread and meat, uh, morning and evening. And for the widow and her son, that they would keep going back to the flour and the oil and that it wouldn't run dry, which is incredible. But I want you to notice the way that the Lord is doing that is such that he provides something even better, which is that their faith grows. After all, by the brook, he doesn't supply months and months worth of food for Elijah all in one go. The ravens don't bring huge fridge with, you know, masses of food in it. They bring meal by meal. And the widow and her son, they don't get huge amounts of flour and oil. As someone has rightly pointed out, it doesn't say uh, that the Lord promises that the flour and oil will overflow, just that they won't run out. Which means this was a daily miracle for them. That every day they'd have to keep coming back and going, is it going to be there? Is there going to be enough? It is a daily exercise in trust in the Lord's provision. Why? Because this is the way God grows faith. In a book I was reading about this, um, uh, F.B. Meyer uh, says this is actually an elementary lesson for uh, God's servant, God's follower. God's servant must learn, he says, to take one step at a time. He says this is an elementary lesson, but it is hard to learn. That the Lord provides step by step. 
which I think explains why the unexpected happens in verse 17. In verse 17, we are told that the woman's son becomes ill, gets worse and worse, and finally stops breathing. In other words, he dies. Now, that's a surprise. Again, there are lots of surprises in this, but that's a surprise, isn't it? As you read it through, as it was read. Because God has preserved this family. He's provided for them. They were going to die. They were going to eat their last meal and die. And yet God provided for them. But now the son has died. You think, what's going on? And the widow is desperate. Verse 18. She says, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come here to remind me of my sin and kill my son? And Elijah doesn't have an answer for her. He just says, well, give me your son. And he goes up to his room and prays to the Lord. And you see, Elijah is as confused as the woman. He doesn't know what's going on either. He prays to the Lord. Verse 20, Lord my God, have you brought this tragedy even on this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? You see, Elijah doesn't know what's going on either. And then Elijah prays again. Verse 20. Sorry, verse 21. Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. And the Lord heard Elijah's cry. And the boy lived. And he takes the child down to his mother, alive. And verse 24, notice how she replies. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is true. Now I know. You see, his greatest provision is not actually that the boy lives, but that she is growing in her trust in the Lord. After all, didn't she know those things already? Didn't she know already that Elijah was a man of God and that his word was truth? You go, yes, of course. You see that already. Well, yes, she knew it, but now she knows it. It's not new information, it's deeper in her heart. Now I know. There's a parallel here with Jesus. There's a particular point in Jesus' ministry where Jesus raises someone from the dead. In John chapter 11, the family of a guy called Lazarus are grieving. Lazarus has died. Lazarus was one of Jesus' friends. And Jesus too weeps when Lazarus is dead. But there is a difference. You see, Elijah, when Elijah, uh, with the woman and her dead son, Elijah didn't know what was going on. He cries out to the Lord, but he's kind of going, God, I don't get this. Jesus, with Lazarus dead and with Lazarus' family, knows exactly what's going on. He knew what was happening. In fact, Jesus is in control of the situation. When Lazarus was sick, Jesus deliberately stayed away, even though he could have come and healed Lazarus. He deliberately stayed away. And when he hears that Lazarus is dead, Jesus says this to his followers. 
For your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. You see, the best thing for his followers, and for Lazarus's sister, and I would say for Lazarus, was that Lazarus died. So they would see Jesus raise Lazarus, and so they would believe. That, and actually, that's a big difference between Elijah and Jesus. Whereas Elijah shows us the Lord God is God and shows us his power over life and death, Jesus points to himself and shows he has power over life and death. He says to Lazarus' sister, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he dies. He's showing them that they need to put their faith in him, to trust him. The best thing for his followers was that Lazarus died so that they would believe in him. Best thing for this woman was that her son died so that she would know that the Lord is God. And Jesus is not done with us yet either. He continually has a plan that we grow in faith as individuals and as a church. He is not finished deepening, growing our faith, our trust in him, our trust in his word. He says, trust me, I will provide. He hasn't promised us ravens. He hasn't promised us that he will immediately raise up our loved ones when they die. But he does call us to trust him. That in life's needs and in the face of death, Jesus is Lord. It may not look like he is very popular, but he is Lord. He is powerful. We can trust him. And we can say, now I know of Jesus. Now I know you are God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is truth. It may seem like God has competition. It may even at times seem like he is losing. But don't be discouraged. The Lord is God. Jesus is Lord. And we can trust him with our lives. And next week, we will see the great contest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are God. We praise you for your love for the outsider. Move us to be like you. Help us, Father, to see your huge demand that we put you first and yet to see your provision as well, that we never lose out by putting you first and that your greatest provision for us is that we grow in faith. Help us, Father, to trust you and to keep trusting you day by day. Amen.